Well, uh, today is going to be a weird sermon, not normal at all. So I'm sorry for you who are here for the first time. Uh, You'll have to come back next week to see what it's really like. We'll keep saying that. Um, Because the sermon today is going to be very heavy on information. And normally our sermons aren't heavy on information. They're heavy on application and conviction and, and motivation to take what you already know and live out of it and obey God. That's what we normally do. Today our sermon is going to be very heavy on, on information. Don't worry, we'll get to the application and conviction part. But uh, it's going to be weird. The other reason um, this is going to be a strange sermon is that math, we're looking at a whole chapter, Matthew 24, and even a little bit of Matthew 25. And some of you will disagree with me as I preach this sermon about what I think Matthew 24 means. And I want all of us to be okay with that. Uh, The reason some of you will disagree with me is because what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 is is what's often called eschatology. That's a big word that just means what's going to happen at the end of the world. And uh, all kinds of people have all kinds of opinions about what's going to happen, about what the Bible teaches about what's going to happen at the end of the world. Um, it would be very silly for us to divide among ourselves over the issue of eschatology. We'll see why as we go through this chapter. So you can disagree with me on this. You can't disagree with Jesus, though. So listen to what he says and what the main point is. Matthew 24. Um, This is probably the most disputed chapter in the Bible. There is more disagreement about what Matthew 24 means probably than any other chapter in the whole New Testament. But I'm going to tell you what it all means in one sermon. Well, not really. I won't tell you what it all means, but we will cover it in one sermon. And um, I'm going to give you an overview of the chapter and and also the first part of chapter 25. And I want to try to let Jesus himself tell us what the point is. Jesus did not give us these words in order to tickle our curiosity. And he certainly didn't give us these words so that we could divide from one another based on our theories of eschatology. He spoke these words to his disciples so that they and we would take warning, so that we would be prepared, so that we would be moved to get busy doing the things that he commands us to do. That is why he gave us these words. So what is Matthew 24 and 25? Matthew 24 and 25 is usually called a discourse. What a a terrible word. It's not a discourse. It's a sermon. Jesus is preaching. Now he's preaching to a small little group. He's preaching to his his disciples. Uh, But he's preaching. He's not just rambling on in a theological discourse. He's preaching to them. Jesus has a purpose. He has a biblical text. He quotes several times from the Old Testament scripture. He has an outline. He has pastoral applications. And the main point of the sermon is the pastoral application. He even has illustrations. Chapter 25 and some of chapter 24 is nothing but illustrations, parables that illustrate and and apply the main point of his sermon. So Matthew 24 to 25 is a sermon. And as we read through it and as you hear me, please 
Don't think of it as a discourse to be analyzed and picked apart and dissected. And it's, it's a sermon. And here, Jesus Christ preaching to you as we read these words. Now, there are four principles of interpretation for Matthew 24 and 25 that I want to give you before we jump in so that we can kind of get the lay of the land. Four principles of interpretation. Number one, the context is vital. And we'll come back to that. But with any, as with any passage of Scripture, the context, what's going on around it, uh, what happens before it, uh, what sets up the whole thing, all of that stuff is very important, and it's especially important uh, for rightly understanding Matthew 24 and 25. So number one, context is vital. Number two, when Jesus speaks of these events, he doesn't always unfold them progressively as if he was giving you a timeline and point Z is always further along in history than point A. He doesn't, he doesn't do it that way. He's going to be unfolding things, but he's unfolding them in a way that he repeats himself. This is a very common kind of thing that you'll find in the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, are just It's just a Hebrew way of doing things. They did it this way. Several places you can find this in the Bible where they would give you the story and they'd come back and they'd give you the story again, but from a little bit different perspective. And you'll see that in the book of uh, Revelation as well. So Jesus repeats himself several times. He especially does when he speaks of the end and of final judgment, the end of the world, and the funny thing about Matthew 24 is he does it three times. He speaks about the end three times. And we know that the world doesn't end three times. So he's repeating himself. He's going over the same territory over and over again from a different perspective. Number three, Jesus gives a sketch, not a schedule. If you're looking for a schedule of events that are going to happen at the end of the world, you're not going to find them in Matthew 24. Because Jesus doesn't give you a schedule that you can check off. He gives you a sketch. And he tells us generally the kinds of things that are going to happen. Number four. Jesus' purpose in this sermon is pastoral. Please get that. He is like a pastor with his sheep. And he is warning and he is encouraging. He is exhorting. His people. He's not just giving their, them a, a fax. He's not just telling them things to satisfy their curiosity. And so if you read, again, if you read Matthew 24 as if you're getting a, a, a cold treatise or discourse about intellectual topics, you will miss the point. So his purpose in this sermon is what the pur purpose of any sermon would be. He's being a pastor. He's shepherding his people. And we'll see that especially as we get to the end of our time this morning. So now with those basic principles in mind, let's look at this passage and let's see what he says. First of all, think about the context. Look at what's going on before Jesus really gets into this sermon. It sets us up for it uh, in verses 1 and 2. And it says, Jesus came out from the temple... And was going away when his disciples came up to point out the, the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now think about what's just happened. 
Um, those of you who have been here for the last several weeks um, have an advantage because you know what's just happened. And those of you who haven't been here need to be caught up a little bit. What Jesus has just done is he has just finished the dreadful pronouncements of judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees uh, in Matthew chapter 23. He has just gone on and on and on saying dreadful things to these men, to the leaders of the, of the whole nation of Israel. And he's, he's pronounced woes against them, woes, promises of judgment against them. We won't read all of them, but just listen. You'll get the feel for it when you, when you hear things like this. This is back in from Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. Everything's clean, everything's spotless, everything's nice on the outside. But inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Judgment will come on you, Jesus says. You're hypocrites. He says in verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Hard words. Words of judgment. He says in chapter 23, verse 38, Behold, your house. What he means by that is your temple, where they were at that moment, the temple that all of the life of Israel surrounded around, and their whole nation. He says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, destroyed. Now, can you imagine the heaviness and the intensity of that? Not only that, Jesus is walking out of the temple having said all of that, not only the heaviness and the intensity of all that he just said, but as he walks out of the temple, he is leaving the temple for the very last time. He will never set foot in this temple again. God is leaving the temple, never to return. What use is a temple when God's gone? That's exactly what's happening. He's leaving. He's walking away. He's shaking the dust off of his feet. And he will never walk into this temple again. The one who is the glory of the temple departs from it forever. He is irrevocably, unmitigatedly, categorically finished with the temple. He's done. And so after all of that, those words still ringing in their ears with the significance of the, this event may be being lost on them. Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple, leaving a wake behind them. And what do the disciples say? What do they say? Hey, Jesus. That's a really cool building, isn't it? I mean, what in the world were they, were they thinking? What does Jesus say? He says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. He says, don't talk to me about buildings. Don't be impressed with these buildings. Don't didn't you hear a word that I just said? This place is absolutely doomed. No, 
Not one stone that you're so impressed by will remain standing. It is all completely destined for destruction. Why are you talking to me about buildings? Those are hard words, more hard words. And the disciples are very understandably shaken by them. And they don't understand them because this goes against everything that they thought. They thought the Messiah would come. He would make the temple more glorious. Like it was back in the days of King Solomon. They thought it would be more glorious. He wouldn't destroy it. He'd make it bigger and better and more gold and more glamour and more glory. And he just said that he's going to tear it down. This does not compute with the disciples. And so after they've walked from the temple, they've walked down across this valley that's right outside the the temple. The temple's up on this mountain. They kind of walk down the valley. They go up on another mountain called the Mount of Olives. And as you're sitting on the Mount of Olives, you're looking out, and guess what you see? You see the temple. It's all there is to see. There it is. And so they walk up, sit down on the Mount of Olives, and they muster up enough nerve to ask a question. Verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When is all this going to go down? And the rest of chapters 24 and 25 are Jesus' answer to those questions. Now, so look at the questions. It looks like the disciples are asking three questions. They're only asking two questions, really. They ask about two things. Number one, tell us, number one, when will these things happen? That's when will this temple be destroyed? And number two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It looks like three things. It's two things because the way it's written, um, those last two things go together. Two questions. Tell us, number one, when will these things happen? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, notice something about how the disciples, excuse me, how do they ask this question? They ask the question in a way um, that shows that they think these things are all going to happen at the same time. They think that Jerusalem will be destroyed. That's what they mean by when will these things happen. And they think that Jesus will return in final judgment and bring the end of this age all at the same time. One big event. They can't think of it any other way. How could you destroy the temple and still have the world continuing to exist? I mean, that's, that's how important the temple is to them. So they think that these things will all happen at once. The problem is that those two things do not happen at once. And that's one of the things that makes this passage so hard. Because we're left to interpret and to think about and to discern when is Jesus talking about these things, the destruction of the temple? When is he talking about his return and the end of the age? Now, by the way, this problem that the disciples had is nothing new. It's what the the prophets in the Old Testament, same problem they had. The problem of seeing things that are going to happen in the future but being confused about the timing. When you read the prophets of the Old Testament, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to figure out the amount of time that will ultimately separate the events that they foretell. They see amazing things in the future, but they're almost always, um, if not jumbled up, at least blurred, at least 
difficult to tell if there's time between these things or not. They see the nation of Israel being taken off into captivity because of their sin. The prophets looking forward who who lived before that time. They also see the nation being brought back from captivity, the promises of God that he would bring the nation back. They see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming to bring salvation from sin and judgment. They see the church spreading and growing as the gospel goes to the nations. They see Jesus returning to finally judge the living and the dead. They see Jesus destroying this earth and establishing the new heavens and the the new earth where righteousness will dwell forever and ever. But the problem is they see all of that as if it were all going to happen all at once. It's hard to tell from their perspective when exactly these things will happen and how much time will come between them. From our perspective, we see the distance between those events. Because many of them have already happened. But from their perspective, they saw them all as future. They tended to see them all as they would happen in one cataclysmic event. In the light of Christ's coming, we have a better perspective than they did. And the same thing is true with these disciples in Matthew 24 as they ask these questions. They think that all of these things that they're asking about are going to happen all at once. But if you have that perspective, you have all kinds of problems with what Jesus actually says. These things actually didn't happen all at once. Now, what does Jesus actually say? The rest of what Jesus says in this sermon is divided up into three sections. I'm going to give you the skeleton and then we'll go through it. First of all, he talks about what the time between the first and second coming will generally be like. What will it be like between Jesus' first coming and second coming? What will that time period like? This is when we are living right now. What will it be like generally? And also in that section, he talks very specifically about one event that is going to happen that for us has already happened, namely the destruction of Jerusalem that he's already warned the Jews about. And he gives very specific instructions about that particular event. That's verses 4 through 21. Secondly, he talks about his coming, his second coming, and the last judgment and the end of the age. That's verses 22 to 31. And then he illustrates and applies his words. That's verses 32 all the way through the end of chapter 25. So there's some order and there's some divisions. And it helps us understand what he's talking about. So let's look at what he says. The first of these sections, number one, what will the time be? between his first and second comings generally be like. Now, if you have your Bible, you can read along with me or you can look up on the screen. I'm going to read for you verses 4 through 14. So they asked the question in verse 3. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise... And will mislead many. 
Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That is the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming in a nutshell. I say that because of what Jesus says. He says in verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. And he says in verse 8, But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, all these things he lists are just the general, typical struggles that his people will face until the end of the world does actually come. These are the kinds of things that you and I will always face until the end of the world comes. The kinds of things that his disciples who were alive at the time would face throughout their lifetime. The end will come. Come after the gospel is preached to all the nations. That's what verse 14 says. So what will, be, what will this whole time period be like? What will it be like? What is, how does Jesus describe our day? That's what he's doing. Not because our day is at the end of time. He's describing what the whole time period will be like. Has been like, is like, will be like. What's he saying? He says it will be a time of false Christs and false messiahs. People who claim to be the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who has the real truth. Um, Muhammad is nothing new. Sun, Sun, how do you pronounce his name? Myung Moon, the Moonies. Any of you actually remember the Moonies? He's still around. Um, nothing new. He claimed to be the Messiah, reincarnation of Jesus Christ. David Koresh. You all remember David Koresh? Nothing new. Barack Obama. Nothing new. Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. He also says it will be a time of wars. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. It's easy for us to think that our time is more warlike than any other time. I suppose it is true that more people have been killed. I think this is a true uh, number. More people have been killed in the 20th century than all the centuries before in warfare. But why is that? Because we've got big bombs, guns. It's not because our time is more warlike. Every time has been a time of war. He says it will be time of famines and earthquakes. How many of you felt the earthquake a couple of months ago? Right? Earthquake in southern Indiana. Does that mean the end of the world must, is going to happen tomorrow? Well, it might. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying the time of, between my first and second comings will be a time that is dark. Wars, false Christs. Even the world itself, even nature itself, will be out to get us. Earthquakes, famines, people starving to death, crops not growing, 
He says the whole time between the first and second coming will be marked by the persecution of Christians. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. This is the way it always has been. This is the way it always will be until Jesus returns. Which, of course, begs the question, doesn't it? Where are the persecuted today? It's normal. It's not strange at all. But where are they? There are persecuted. They just don't happen to be here. Why is that? He says it will be a time of both apostasy and endurance. He says at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Talking about people who profess to be Christians. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Can you think, uh, those of you who know anything about the history of the church for the last 2,000 years, can you think of a better description of the history of the church than those words? We have this romantic view that the history of the church, that though way back in the early days, things were easy, things were calm, no um, fighting, no heresy, no, no bad guys. The truth is the history of the church has been one long story of betrayal and division and false prophets and lawlessness and coldness. And all of that was happening even then in the days of the apostles. And all of it is happening now. And the reality of all of that calls us to endurance. Because Jesus says, <clears throat> the one who endures all of that, the one who stands firm in the middle of all of that, falling away, all of that coldness, all of that lawlessness, all of that hatred, the one who stands and endures, the one who stands in the middle of American evangelical civic religion, the one who stands on the truth of Scripture against all of that and endures, unmoved, will be saved. We live in a time of great apostasy and falling away from the truth, and we must endure, but that is nothing new. Don't have a, a, a pity party on yourself because it's hard. It's always been hard. So endure. And lastly, he says that the time between his first and second comings will be marked by the advance and the spread and the worldwide conquering power of the gospel. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's a lot that you could say about that wonderful promise in verse 14, but get this, most of all, Jesus will win. The gospel will win. Jesus is winning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing. This good news is being preached and will continue to be preached as a testimony to all the people groups in the whole world. It will happen. It is happening. Jesus is the king. Revelation 7, 9, John says this as he looks and sees a picture of what's going on in heaven. He says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Bank on it. 
This age is an age of Jesus Christ winning through the advance and the power of his gospel. There is no way that his purpose to conquer the world will ever fail. No way. So Jesus says, this is what the whole history of the world will be like for all of my people everywhere until I come again. So be on guard. Don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. Don't be surprised. Don't fall away. Endure to the end. Preach the gospel. But then he shifts. And he shifts in verse 15. Away from talking about the general nature of the time between the first and second comings. And he speaks specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 24, 15. Follow along with me as I read it. Look at it. Verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been and not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now it's easy to see the shift here if you're looking for it. Because in the first section he was being very general. He was talking about the whole period of time between his first and second comings. He was saying what it would generally be like, but here in starting in verse fifteen, he gets very specific. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see a specific event, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, he's talking about a specific event that people will understand if they understand the Old Testament and particularly the the prophecies in the book of Daniel. He's talking about something very specific. He gives specific instructions to the people who will see this abomination of desolation. He says, you'll know it when you see it, and here's what you need to do when you see it. When you see this, flee to the mountains. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by mountains. Flee, run away from the city. Whoever is in the housetop, that's those old, um, you've seen pictures of these clay kind of buildings, the houses that they lived in, flat roofs, they'd spend their time up on the top, cool at night. When you're sitting up on the housetop, relaxing, and you see this abomination of desolations, don't go down to get pack a bag. Don't go down to get the things in your house. Run. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Run. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. It's clear that he is speaking to a specific group of people who live in a specific time, in a specific place, who will witness a specific event, and he tells them exactly what to do. Now, the major question that people struggle with here is in verse 15. What in the world does he mean by the abomination of desolation? Those Those are big, scary words. What's he mean? If you listen to um, prophecy guys on the Christian TV or radio or whatever, you'll, you'll hear them use this term. 
abomination of desolation. And they have all kinds of theories about what it means. The thing is, Jesus tells us what it means. He doesn't do it here. He tells us over in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some passages from the Gospel of Luke to you. Listen to these. It's the same sermon. Um, uses a little bit different words, and that's good for us because they shed light on what he's saying here. In Luke 19, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. This isn't quite the sermon yet. We'll get to that in a second. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Luke 19:41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. Now listen to this. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. He's talking to the city. Your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, will surround you, and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. He's talking about the exact same thing. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize your Savior when He came to you. <clears throat> and then in Luke 21, in the sermon that, I'm, that we're looking at in, in Matthew 24 and 25, it's the same thing, different, slightly different words. He says this, Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, so instead of saying when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these days are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies. He goes on and on. It's exactly the same thing that he's already said in Matthew 24. So what is the abomination of desolation that he's talking about in Matthew 24, 15? Talking about the same thing. He's saying that what will bring desolation to the city of Jerusalem will be Gentile armies, Roman armies, throwing up the siege works, surrounding the army, cutting it off, ultimately invading it and completely tearing it to pieces. Surrounding and trampling the holy city of Jerusalem. It's an abomination because the Roman army is a pagan army. And what pagans do is they worship idols. And the, and the Roman army in particular worked. You've all seen these in, you know, Ben-Hur, you know. You see these standards that the Romans march around in front of them, these big poles with eagles on top and, and a bust of, of Caesar. What were those there for? They were there to worship. The army was held together by virtue of worshiping pagan idols. And for that army to come in and stand in the holy city of Jerusalem, let alone in the holy place of the temple as they destroyed it, was an abomination, and that brought desolation to the whole city. Destroyed it. Jesus is talking about the city of Jerusalem being surrounded by a foreign army and being utterly destroyed. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about something that's in our future. He's talking about something that already happened. Historians 
tell us that it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. The Roman army surrounded Jerusalem after years of, of Jerusalem causing trouble and rebelling against Rome. Finally, they're fed up with it. They surround Jerusalem. They build, literally build a wall all the way around the city of Jerusalem so no one can come or go. And eventually they go into the city and they literally tore it to pieces. The temple of Jerusalem, the prize, the glory of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. It was so destroyed that historians tell us that there was a man who got a plow, a farmer's plow, and actually plowed the ground where the temple used to have been. So if you think of looking out there in that field, think of that field as a place where a huge building used to be, and now it's so destroyed that you can run a plow through it and not hit a stone. That's what happened. It's exactly what happened. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Now here's the amazing thing. When the city of Jerusalem was finally attacked and torn to the ground, guess what? There were no Christians there. There were no Christians there. Why? It's simple. Because they knew what Jesus had said. They understood what he said. They knew he was talking about them. They believed him and they obeyed him. And when they saw things starting to unfold, exactly as he had said, they took warning and they left. Not one single Christian was found in the city of Jerusalem. That's what the historians of the time tell us. Now, another obvious question from this section is this. What does he mean in verse 21 by the term the Great Tribulation? I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. Just look what he says. There's only one thing that he can mean in the context. He's talking about the intense suffering that's going to happen to the people who were in the city of Jerusalem at the time when the, city, when the Roman army destroyed it. He says, for, he says, pray that the armies won't begin to surround Jerusalem on the Sabbath because then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Let Jesus meet. So when he uses this term, great tribulation, he's talking about something particular. And to say that there will never be a tribulation like this one in the entire history of the world makes no sense if what he's talking about is the end of the world. If the world ends after the Great Tribulation, then why say that there won't ever be anything like it again? There is no again. There is no more. He's talking about the devastation and the horror that came upon the city of Jerusalem when Rome destroyed it. Read the histories. It'll make your hair curl. Now, follow along as I read the rest of the chapter in the first part of chapter 25. I'll, I'll, we'll get a little bit into that. I'm convinced that the rest of this does have to do specifically with the second question the disciples asked back in verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He's shifting away from the specifics about the destruction of Jerusalem, and now he's going to talk about what it's going to be like just before Jesus does return. Matthew 24:22. Unless those days had been cut short, that is the days between his first and second comings, 
He's saying things will get so bad towards the end of this general time, so bad that unless this age is cut short, he says, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Again, this age will be marked by false prophets, false Christ, and evidently it's going to be even more intense towards the very end. So intense that they could deceive the elect, if that were possible. They'll even be performing miracles, false signs and wonders. Verse 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Fast, public, obvious. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The age will become so corrupt, so dead, so rotten, that the only thing you can say is, it's a corpse. Attracting vultures. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation or the distress or the trouble of those days, the days of intensifying evil and corruption right before Jesus returns, he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He is talking about the final judgment. All of the elect gathered. This is it. When he talks about the sun being darkened, the moon falling, the stars falling, all those kinds of things. That doesn't always talk about the end of the world. Uh, The Old Testament uses that kind of language about big things that aren't necessarily the end of the world. But I think he is talking about the end of the world here. Judgment. The end. All of those who have put their faith in Christ gathered. And that's it. Now, starting in verse 32, he starts to illustrate his point. Verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves in the springtime. You know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. But then he throws us a curveball in verse 34. Everybody look at verse 34. This is one of the reasons why Matthew 24 is so hard. Because of what he says in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. It's one of the most difficult, difficult parts of the chapter. What does he mean by this generation? The most natural way to understand what he means by this generation is... People he's talking to. People who are alive at the time that he's saying these things. And I want to sh- I believe that's what he means. If you have your Bible open, you can see this. If you don't, just listen. Back in chapter 23, in verse 36. All right, I know this is like drinking from a fire hydrant. 
<laughs> information. But just try to catch it. Back in Matthew 23, when he had said for the first time <clears throat> that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, he's talking to the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He says in Matthew 23:36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, what's he talking about then? He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So what's he, what's he saying? In verse 34, he has to be saying this. All of these things that I have described about the nature of the time between my first and second comings will happen immediately. There won't be a honeymoon period. Once I'm gone, all of this stuff will start. You'll have false Christs. You'll have apostasy. You'll have false teachers. <clears throat> You'll have all these turmoils. All of these kinds of things will begin immediately as soon as I go, including the destruction of Jerusalem. All of that will happen. All you people who are sitting here right now, he's talking to this crowd of people and their generation, the people who are alive at the time. He says, you will see all of those things. <clears throat> You'll see all of it. All of it will happen even before this generation that is alive right now. But on the other hand, look at verse 36. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father of alone. Jesus says all of these things will happen when you people are still alive. But of that day, no one knows. You will see all of these general things come upon you. You will see Jerusalem destroyed. But of that day... No one knows. Not even the sun. See, that's why it's so silly. That's why it's so silly for us to have denominations whose main distinction is a version of eschatology. Why in the world? Why is that? Why do we divide from one another over eschatology, over this, what will happen at the end? Jesus said, I don't know when that day is going to happen. But we get so calcified in our opinions, and we divide over them. It's, it's a tragedy. It's a shame. Now, that's the way I understand Matthew 24. Sometimes he's talking about the whole period between his first and second comings. Sometimes he's talking particularly to those people about the destruction of Jerusalem. Sometimes he's talking about the end of the age that will come as a surprise to everyone. But what's the point? What's the point? That's one of the points. Listen to Jesus. Hear his warnings and his commands in light of these things. What are his warnings and commands? He's, he's kind of been giving them to us all along. First of all, do not be misled by false Christs and false teachers. Verse 4, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Verses 23 to 26. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Do you, do you believe, do you even believe that there are false Christs and false shepherds to watch out for these days? Do you even believe that? Or do you assume that everyone who claims to be a Christian is beyond criticism? If someone says, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, does that mean that you cannot exercise discernment with him? If a, if a political candidate, I mean, if he wants people to shut off discernment um, mode, all he has to say is, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for people like me so I can go to heaven. Oh, okay. All right. Then you're safe. We'll believe anything you say. Everything that you do must be motivated by godliness because you said, I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you think that someone, just because they've claimed to be a Christian, you can't question their teaching, let alone their motives. Jesus says that there would be many deceivers who come in his name, that there would be many false prophets, false prophets who can even perform signs and wonders. So they look good on the outside. They look godly. They look powerful. And he said that these false prophets would be so slick and so persuasive and so deceptive that they could even deceive God's elect, if that were possible. Do you think that you won't have to exercise discernment in this age? Much of what passes for Christianity in our country is calculated to make you think discernment is a sin. Do you think that you're immune to deception? That you won't need Jesus' warnings to watch out. Be on guard. Be on guard. Use discernment. Do not be deceived. Secondly, Jesus commands you not to be afraid. Verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. How do you respond when you hear of wars and troop buildups and terrorist plots? How do you respond to all of that? I mean, really. Do you live in fear? Are you controlled by anxiety when you watch the news? Are you training your children to be controlled by anxiety because somehow something bad is going to happen to them? If so, you are disobeying Jesus. Jesus said, see to it that you are not frightened. Live your life with confidence in Jesus Christ as your king, who is in control of the armies of heaven and earth and who will return with his army to conquer and to judge and to rescue and to save. Live in the confidence of that. If not, you'll be paralyzed. And third, lastly, Jesus commands you to be ready for his return. Right? Verse 44. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Chapter 25, verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. 
Are you ready? Are you? What's it mean to be ready? What does readiness look like? Well, it does not look like selling all of your stuff and sitting on a hilltop gazing into the sky. That's not what readiness looks like. It does not mean being passive and inactive. It does not mean being pessimistic about the power of the gospel in this country and in this town and in this university. All of the parables that Jesus tells that we didn't have time to read in chapter 24 and 25, all of these parables that Jesus tells are about action. Matthew 24, 45 and 46, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who's the faithful slave? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he returns. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing what the master told him to do when he returns. Not speculating, not waiting, not hiding in a bunker, but actively engaged in all the things that God has commanded him to do. You know what Martin Luther said when someone asked him, what today, what would you do today if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? You know what he said? This might be apocryphal. I think it's true. He said, I'd plant a tree. Why in the world? What was he thinking? He was thinking, God commanded me to rule over the earth and subdue it. So if I'm going to obey God, even if I know he's coming back tomorrow, I'm going to obey him today. You don't stop obeying God because you think he's coming back tomorrow. The wise virgins had their lamps ready. The praiseworthy servant is the one who takes the coins. We'll see this next week. Who takes the coins that the master has given him and does something with them. He doesn't bury them and wait. He does something with them. So are you ready? Do you trust Jesus as the one who will save you from God's wrath on that day of judgment that is coming? And are you living for him now? Not in passivity and pessimism, but in obedience and hope and submission to his lordship. Are you active in preaching the gospel and using your gifts and fighting your sin? Or are you just wasting your life? It is a complete shame when a man who thinks he is a Christian because he has made some kind of superficial profession of faith, he thinks he's a Christian and all he has to do now is sit back. He wastes his life all in the name of his hope that Jesus will return tomorrow. Happens all the time. If Jesus finds you wasting your life when he returns, he will not be pleased with you. That is the one of whom Jesus says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If your view of eschatology makes you passive, Jesus will not be pleased with you when he does return. 
So I don't care. I don't care if you agree with me or disagree with me about my interpretation of Matthew 24. Ultimately, I couldn't care less. So if you're uptight right now because you don't agree with certain things that I've said about the Great Tribulation or about the abomination of desolation or timelines, that's fine. I honestly don't care. Are you discerning? Are you confident? Are you actively ready to meet your master when he does return? That's the point. Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death so that sinners like you and me, people who disobey God all the time, could be discerning and confident and ready, could be obedient to him, could have fellowship with him, could have relationship with him, could be forgiven by him. If we would stop trusting ourselves and stop believing in ourselves and bow our knees to King Jesus and throw all of our hope on him. Some of you, most of us, the main thing we need to worry about today is not all this speculation about when Jesus will come and who's the Antichrist and what's the mark of the beast and all of that stuff. What you need to worry about is you're going to die. It could be a microscopic little organism that creeps into your body today at lunch and kills you tomorrow. Or you could get slammed by a train on the tracks on the way home. You're going to die. What then? All of this speculation about fantastic things will mean nothing if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ. Submitted yourself to Him, humbled yourself before Him, trusted Him alone to save you from the wrath of God Almighty. So what will you do? Let's pray together.